The following resources presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to A Counselor's Point of View. Hi, my name is Steve Finney and I will be your host. This morning's message is number 70 in our Identity Series. And as most of our online or offline listeners know, we've been doing a series on uh, identity in the area of finances. And this will be our last message in regard to the identity and finances. I may pick up a few of them uh, down the road, but uh, starting next week for our online listeners, I have some very, very exciting news for you. Uh, By the request of a couple of you, as well as some personal things that God has shown me about the importance of understanding the definitions of what we mean by the exchange life. So next week, we're starting a new mini-series called Terms of Endearment. And these will be sermons that are going to cover all the definitions I possibly could think of from A... To Z when it comes to explaining the life of Christ, explaining Christianity, explaining the indwelling life of Christ, explaining the exchanged life. This dictionary is found online free, so what I would encourage you to do starting next week is to download that dictionary that can be found on our website. Download that dictionary, and then as you listen, to the audio messages that we are going to cover the term, we're going to cover the definition, we're going to cover the scripture, and then we're going to do a little preaching on that particular paragraph. So it should be an exciting series to teach you the terms and definitions of of the exchange life and get a little solid preaching from each of those terms. I'm pretty excited about it. But today, the message is called Principles of Serving. And what I'd like to do is to have Ian come up here, stand at the podium, and um, read for us 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember you with tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in my grand, in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. As for this reason, or for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you, through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony that about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearance of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immorality, immortality to life through the gospel, to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed as a appointed a preacher and apostle and a, te- and a teacher, which I now, su- which is why I now suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know that I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day which he has been entrusted to me. Okay, thank you, Ian. Okay, what are some of the principles that are standing out to you in regard to this passage? Generational faith. What is redemption? Redemption, using the story of the potter and the clay, it's when you realize that your clay has become unworkable. And oftentimes they take that clay off of the spinning wheel and they throw it to the floor. Some artists have been known to throw it against the wall or they just throw it back onto the table over and over until it breaks itself up and they reapply a lot of water. They basically redeem it, bring it back to its original state. That's redemption. It's not just saving you from a dark hole. 
it is actually bringing you back to your original state before the fall of, of Adam. That's what God desires to do with us and for us in regard to the topic of finances is to redeem us, to bring us back to the original state, the original teaching, the original dynamics of what it means to spend money according to God's perfect will and holy design. But see, so many people are in so much debt. Now, if we went back, let's say, you know, 20, 25 years and we did the average number thing when it came to the average amount of debt per household, what would you guess as being the average debt per household in 1970? If you were $37,000 in debt in 1970, people would look at you as being horrifically irresponsible. Keep in mind, credit cards were not even uh, a fashion. So you had to really convince your bank that you could pull off a house payment. You had to really convince your bank that you could pull off a car payment. They had a thing called collateral. You couldn't even get a $200 loan to go buy yourself a new stereo system without having something as collateral. Why don't they use collateral anymore? They still do with houses. Exactly. And that's what they found out happened with the world of collateral. Now they sue you. It's better to get a few bucks out of someone than to be stuck with their old beat up car that you didn't take care of. Because most people who have debt and don't take care of their debt don't take care of things around them. And that's what the banking system realized. Is that these people have no clue how to take care of their own debt. So how in the world are we... Uh, why in the world would we take their possessions back from them that they did not care for? Good point. Anyone who takes care of their, their material things around them, the, the lending institution has a pretty good idea that they're going to get their money out of that person sooner or later. Because the two don't match. Irresponsibility of not caring for material things and not caring for your money, those two don't match. So typically those who do take care of their money uh, will take care of their possessions. People do take care of their possessions, do tend to pay off their loans. That's what the lending institution realized. So when it comes to people racking up debt on credit cards, for example, which is the most common way to go into debt, they had to come up with a different system, like throwing you into prison. Okay? So the system today in 2015 is completely different than 1970. Now, what is the typical debt for a family unit? That's mommy's debt, daddy's debt, and sometimes teenager debt because teenagers are getting credit cards earlier and earlier, so they are already racking up debts, even if Daddy had to sign his name to it. There are teenagers, listen to me, there are teenagers carrying around credit cards that are managed by their parents. That's where they're starting. Well, most college kids get a credit card either on their own or by their parents because of taking care of, you know, living arrangements and food and et cetera. It all kind of makes sense, right? Yes, it does make sense to those families. So when that young man graduates from college, still considered under the responsibility of the parents because they're in school, and that's how the IRS clears that standard, is as long as the parents are having to care for them, whatever debt that child has is going to be the debt of the parents. Okay? A half a million dollars. That family's standard debt when that child graduates from college, including their own debt, is a half a million dollars. 
because you got mommy and daddy's house, you have their two cars, you typically have a few possessions hanging around the house that are still on the debt. You have this kid in school. He, he wouldn't even be in school if you paid cash for the education. Wouldn't he be in school if the indwelled family, indwelled Christian family is living by the original redemptive plans of finances for God, the kid wouldn't even be in college. The only people we know of back in 1920s where there were children in college were of the wealthy. And they had to buy one year at a time. They had to pay in advance. Do you see the difference from 1920s to 2020s is you had to pay in advance back in the 20s and today you're in the rears, the same amount. So you have to apply for a college loan every single year. Maybe, maybe you'll get the four-year deal. Then you say, well, you know, the, the interest rates are so reasonable for uh, educational loans, uh, blah, blah, blah. If you guys are not reading the news, that's about to change. That is an argument that is being put before the political decision makers this very hour. That's about to change. So the... One party is saying it's going to throw us back to the 20s. And the other party is saying, oh, no, it won't. Just like everything else, whether it's a car or whether it's a house or whatever it is, they'll find a way to pay it. Because the arguing is, how are we going to get this country stabilized financially? If we keep giving away these loans... How are we going to do this? We're, we're learning it's not working. So how are we going to do this? Part of the reason it's not working is because they don't pay them back. Exactly. I mean, how, how many college graduates uh, graduate saying, I have got to get this debt paid off before I do anything else? No. Typically, they come from spoiled environments where their parents are constantly bailing them on making their bed or making sure there's food on the table, or whatever the case may be. And the kid just grows up under that, someone's going to bail me here. And what happened to the principle where Paul said, you don't eat. You don't work. You don't eat. But it's training them in that way of thinking, so that when they get older, they don't assume someone's going to pay the debt. And Mary's right. What is burying this country is irresponsible parents who are a half a million dollars in debt. And they can't look at their children and say, I'm going to train you to help pay my debt. And back in the 1920s, if Ian went to work, the child labor laws was because the children had to pay the household debt with the mother and father which is how most countries still do it to this day. They don't divide it up under, well, he's a little boy. No, he's not a little boy. According to the Jewish standard, when he turned 13 years of age, he was on his own. But he still had to work for his father's business because the goal is to make sure that he carries on the family tradition of that business. And our passage this morning is literally being shown to us by Paul that this is a spiritual generation message that is to be carried on from generation to generation. Keep in mind that Timothy could not give credit to his father and his grandfathers. These were ladies. Now whether they had died or we don't know exactly what happened to these men, but I'm telling you that most men are so passive it is ridiculous how passive men are today. They've been trained to be raised in a family where the lady always had to think about the solution of deliverance, redemption. So they sit around and stare at the wall, play with their, their little toys, 
and forget about the responsibility of making sure that they care for the family. A boy is not a boy at 13 years of age in Hebrew. That boy is a man. That's why it's called bar, son of maturity, bar mitzvah. 13 years of age, they're done. The standard of God is, Ian is one year beyond being a man. But no, mommy or daddy comes along and says, well, he's just a little boy. He's hungry. We need feeding. Really? Every dollar, every penny should be to clear the family debt until it's gone. Now, that's not a standard we live by today. I can guarantee you. Being tested, have you ever thought about the irony of someone asking you if you would give up everything to serve Jesus? I asked someone this past week because that someone had heard a message and had contacted me and said, I got to tell you that when you said blah, blah, blah in the service, I realized that I could not answer that question. And so, but he said, I'm here today to tell you, I think I would sell off everything that I had to serve Jesus. And I said, I wish you wouldn't have said that. You see, whatever comes out of the mouth of man is recorded in the book of life. If, it, if it's a confession coming off of your tongue, you'll be tested because the scriptures say God tests whom he loves. There are so many people that walk around today saying, oh, I'd serve Jesus at any price. Really? Let's put a knife at your throat. Or let's put a knife at your children's throat in the presence of an enemy. When you have to make a decision between saving your child's life or not, just to say, yes, I would serve Jesus at any price. You see, in America, any price is not having pizza on Friday night. That's, that's typically the motivation that most parents use on their kids. If you do that again, we're not going out Friday night for pizza. Ooh. I mean, that's ridiculous. The way that Americans function in parenting children has to do with donuts and pizza and allowance. Allowance is the stupidest thing I have ever heard of in my entire life. Paying your child to work. Now, that's a responsible thing. But allowance is absolutely the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard enter into the American parental system. Why would that be? Because you're, because you're just giving it away. Yeah. And it's your, it's your hard-earned money to start with. And you're giving it to the child saying, basically, here you go. Here you go. Live off my wealth. Then the parents try to get that child motivated to make their bed. I cannot tell you how many times I've, I've heard this scenario in counseling. And so what's the first thing I recommend that they take away? The allowance. And of course that, that child is so agreeable to this. It's almost like the world's coming to an end. Because they've lost their allowance, their freebie, their lunch ticket. By the time that, that, that young man gets 10 or 11 years of age, they should be earning their lunch ticket for school. Paying their own way. For young ladies, 10 years of age in Hebrew was they were able to manage the entire household at 10. Cooking, cleaning. The whole nine yards at 10 years of age. You think that that's abuse against the child labor laws? Well, take a look at our country today. Spoiled, rotten children that grow up and shoot people because they're bored. You see, an idle mind is the what? Devil's workshop. Yeah. 
even that's a secular term that uh, you know a little buzz term that's used out there but the fact is it's true as a child that is not busy at work gets in trouble they do but a child that is working and they're working for a goal and that is to clear family debt oh now you got a very focused uh, young person And if your family is already out of debt, you still have to work your children because you're working for future goals. Maybe you need a new car. Maybe you need a new this. Maybe that. You, it, it's always a system that is to work for you. So if we say yes to this question, we know God will soon test our motives. If we say no, God will most likely bring us to the point of saying yes. There's no way out of this for indwell believers. If your child looks at you and you ask this question, do you really love this family that you'd be willing to do anything for this family to survive in this family? And the child goes, well, well, yes. Well, what are you going to do as a parent? Sit back and go, whew, got that question answered. Now you're going to test them. Okay, here's your weekly job for now on. And if they start to kick up a fuss and, and act up, then you shouldn't get upset about it because you're getting the results of your lack of investment as parents. That's your behavior you're looking at. Your spoiled child is your behavior. One or both of you as parents are spoiled rotten. That's your behavior you're looking at. But if you're starting to get responsible training back, that's your investment. See how it works? And if the child goes, well, I'm not answering that question. Well, if you don't do anything with that as a parent, you are irresponsible. So you need to bring that child to the point of saying, yes, I'm willing to do whatever is possible that I need to do to take care of this family. Because it's a spiritual principle. But honestly, most Christians become lukewarm at this juncture. And I can't change the fact that God tests whom he loves. That comes out of Proverbs 17.3. This is a real hardcore fact that we simply cannot escape if we love the Lord. Testing is a part of growth, and growth is needed to sustain the attacks of the enemy. Now, I already shared with you several times over the past several weeks that the enemy functions on fear. Now, if you look back into your childhood, some of you still being in your childhood, there is one technique that always, 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 and always, always works. It's for Satan to show up in your dreams and show you a scary face. That's it. Why does Halloween look the way that it looks today? If you think that Satan looks like Halloween, you have been lied to. Because Satan does not look like anything associated with Halloween. He is beautiful in appearance. He is an angel of light. He is so gorgeous that the majority of the entire world, when he shows up physically on this earth, are, he, they're going to follow him because he is so incredibly beautiful. God doesn't make satanic-looking things. So he is not going to look like most of us think, but he presents an image of that to scare you, to put fear into you. Now, the book of Revelation talks about there's coming a day when demons will walk around as humans. Now, if you've been trained by the average dupta media that's been going on in our children's lives for the past 40 years, you're going to think that you could pick those demons out from a normal crowd. So you're at the fairgrounds and you're just having fun with media, all the media that's around you, and you go, "There's look at those two demons over there. Why? Because they... They have fangs and they have blood coming out of the corner of their mouths and, you know, their skin's all gray and wrinkly and 
means you've been lied to. You will not be able to tell the difference between standing and talking to a demon and standing and talking to any other human. In fact, most theologians would teach you that in those days they'll even be a little bit more light-oriented. They'll stand out as trustworthy people. Now, I can't say that's exactly the way it's going to be, nor it is, is it my point. My point is, is that Satan wants to present to children a scary figure to invest fear into their lives so that he can paralyze them so that in the day of an attack, they collapse on you. They don't stand up as warriors and say, Really? You want to go toe-to-toe with a child of the living God? who has the indwelling life of Jesus Christ in me? You want to come up against this? Do you understand that any Christian who has that kind of confidence, demons will literally shake, tremble, and flee? But no, we get all scared and we have nightmares and we wake up in day sweats and we get paralyzed by all the tiny little things that are going to happen to us in that day. And Satan is getting more and more credit for something he can't even do. We are a lied to church. We live Halloween in our homes day in and day out. And the truth is, if people truly understood what the scriptures say about these enemies that we face every day, we would be shocked at exactly how beautiful they are. How deceptive they are. Why does does the average body of Christ follow demonically controlled preachers and teachers and churches and ministries? And it goes on and on. Because it's easy for them to present themselves as light. And people just follow these ministries and teachers and denominations and whatever. And they're leading these people right to the pit. And it's not because they look like Halloween images. When they get up to preach. It's just that they don't preach with a capital T. That's the only difference, folks. A small T is demonic doctrines reformatted to sound like Jesus Christ. A capital T is the inward life of Jesus. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am life. Truth is a person. The indwelling life person. The exchange life person. The new nature person of Jesus Christ. Take that for breakfast, Satan, because there is no way you could stand in the presence of any Christian who lives and believes what I just said. Impossible. He will Flee. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. That scripture does not say, contrary to you charismatic Christians, it does not say, resist the devil and he will flee. It does not say, slam and stab and slam with the name of Jesus and he will flee. It says, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. I have no power to submit to God. But Christ's life in me can submit to God. By submitting to the life of Christ in me, Christ is going to submit to the Father. And therefore, when the enemy sees that kind of exchange life activity going on, he's got to flee. Now, I just totally threw off about 98% of our listeners. They have no clue what I just said. Because they cannot define the exchange life. They think following Jesus is Christianity. Well, all you have to do is put a different Christ on the front of vanity. And what do you have? Whatever you want. Christianity could look like a showboat. 
you know, high-dollar church, or it could look like a poverty-driven church, but it's not preaching with a capital T. Two principles of serving. I know that Christ actually has to do the serving of the Father through me. I simply have to serve Christ. So those two are very important to understand what we're teaching this morning. So there are two primary principles that I have found in the scriptures that God requires of us. And this is, of course, in order to get to the point of serving God rather than money or actually anything else. So here's principle number one. We worship the things that we love. So just honestly speaking, and those of you who are listening online, just, just text me the thing that you love. And don't say Jesus. Because if you say Jesus, you are going to be tested this week. Anyone who uses the name of Jesus or the personhood of Jesus like it's some kind of seal on a letter is soon to be surprised because they're going to stand before the living Christ one day and they're going to be saying, I casted out demons in your name. I preached in your name. I performed miracles in your name. And Jesus is going to look at you and say, Be gone from me, for I know you not. See, that's the moment. It's not here on earth. That's the moment that you're going to be shocked. So you saying that you're preaching and teaching and you're saying you've casted out demons and you're saying that you have, you have performed great miracles impresses me not. In fact, I'll put a warning sticker on your ministry. Because it doesn't prove anything. Is this person worshiping what they love? And people that love ministry even more than, than the reason why they're in ministry, it's an alarm. So I want to ask you an honest question. What do you love? Everything we say we love is what we'll end up worrying with. The other thing would be food. I love food. The funny thing about food is a lot of people that have an idol, for example, or a thing that they love with health. Some of the sickest people I have ever known in my entire life are people who push the health industry, honestly. And I've had many others say the same thing. I have a surgeon friend in Phoenix who says, I will not operate on, on a vegetarian. <laughs> so they don't have enough amino acids, amino acids sustaining their system. You get in there and start cutting on the organs and they start falling apart on you. We have a very precious dear friend of ours that died and, and her organs, how did the medical people describe it? Literally what? Because they just fell apart on the inside. And she was the biggest activist I had ever met with the health industry. And the money she would spend on health programs and blah, 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 and it literally killed her. That's kind of how it works, though. The very thing that you end up loving and devoting your money to is oftentimes what kills you. Now, that is not always the case because God doesn't function and always is like that. It is a ground rule. Okay? So, number one is we worship the things that we love. The practical, practical principle drives you in and uh, every day, moment by moment in life. God always goes after the things that we love more than him. Well, that totally makes sense. How does he go after these things? That's his business. So as parents, if our children are saying that they love something more than Jesus, it is our responsibility to use that to move them to transferring their loyalty from an object to a God, the God, the living God. And that's the part of parenting children hate, typically. Because the only thing that's 
tends to motivate children is material possessions. So the parents say, if you do that again, I'm taking that away from you. For how long? An hour? You see, it becomes a game. And it shows the child how to get around that manipulation of you trying to control their behavior. And the simple facts are, if you do that again, I will take it away from you and give it to charity. You see what I'm saying? You've completely rearranged their entire worldview. Not if I hold out long enough, I'm going to get this thing back with even some benefits. I'm going to lose it entirely. That is how God functions. And that is a hard thing for us to get our arms around, is that, is that God saying these statements that of him, he's the God who gives and he's the God that takes away. Well, I'd like to see how that would work in a God taking a child to heaven early on. How, how, do, you, how do you manipulate that? You don't. So instead of the child as an adult collapsing and in, 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 in losing something that they value, you need to have that child who now becomes an adult to be able to, after they've lost that thing, to be able to go, God, you are the God of the universe. You give and you take away. And please work with my heart to bring me to the point of accepting this. Now you're functioning in real Christianity. Not pitching a fit and saying, I don't like God anymore. Oh, I tried that God thing. Or, you know, God just blah, blah, blah. That's what our world's doing out there with God. Why? Because they're coming from a generation that is spoiled rotten. That if they don't have their cell phones and they don't have their, their laptops and they don't have their credit cards and they don't have their... They just fall apart and throw fits. That's the generation we have as an adult now. They're blaming God because God won't spoil them rotten. It's called the video generation. As you push a button and you get immediate results. Because people want it before now. They don't even want to suffer with, I'm hungry. Because if you feed your body before it's hungry... You go into obesity. Satan knows that. Why wouldn't he do that spiritually to us? And that's how it works. The great meltdown. The best way to find out if someone is more important to you than God is by thinking, if God took it away, would I go into a meltdown to the point of questioning God? What does it look like for a young person to go into a meltdown? They're going to get angry. They're going to go into a control battle or whatever. So loss of a child and a child in a meltdown is actually a parental fear that I have no clue what to do with this kid. No clue. And so what ends up happening is, of course, the child ends up controlling the parent and knows that all I got to do is pitch a little fit and I'm probably going to paralyze my mother or my father. They're not going to know what to do with me. And maybe if I kiss on them and hug them a lot and stroke my parents a lot in respects of all this affection, that they will not tell me what to do. So they use affection to manipulate the parent so that they are not obligated to do the most uncomfortable thing to do, and that is to pass the test of love. God tests whom he loves. There's the dynamics. I will not, I would not, and I will never entrust ministry to a spoiled child as an adult won't do it until I know that that child as an adult has gone through constant brokenness to where they have passed the test of true love then I would give ministry to that 
adult. But because that is God's standard, he will not hand over his ministry to spoiled children who are now adults. Stay with me on this. If the majority of our generation today is spoiled brats, as adults, how does that that go with our message today with money? They grow up under being spoiled. And what is going to be that young person, as a young adult, what will be their goal and objective? Do what they need to do to spoil themselves. All their goals are going to be to graduate from college in order to make more money. All their goals are going to be is to get that new car, that sports car. All their goals are going to be to, you know, have the bling bling hanging around their neck. All their goals and objectives be have that good looking girl on their side. All their goals, everything is going to be beauty and bling bling. And it will have nothing to do with ministry. Nothing to do with ministry, and that is our generation today. So what kind of ministries are attractive that people are literally throwing their millions and millions and millions of dollars? Do you know that by the time we have lunch today, that the church in America will have billions of dollars to be put into the bank tomorrow? And what ministries are this body of Christ throwing their money at? Prosperity doctrine. Bling, bling, bling. Because it's, it's all spoiling our pastors, spoiling our church, spoiling ourselves. Because pastor's promising if I give you know $500,000 to the church this morning for this building project, I will prosper endlessly as an adult. And that is where we're at today. So to have a church functioning in the poverty of Jesus, who didn't even have a pillow to lay his head on, and to function like Jesus, if Jesus was to walk into this room on an average day of ministry, when he was walking the earth, he would still have egg in his beard. He'd probably stink. His sandals would be dusty. His robe would be, have probably a week's worth of grub on it. He wouldn't have a three-piece suit. He would not have a silk tie made in Europe. He would not have a fancy car out front waiting for him. That is how far we've come with money in the church. Why? Because we tend to throw our money at what we love. Whether it is the preacher in the church, whether it is the church, whether it is the building of the church, whether it is, we just tend to throw our money at what we love. So you just find out where the person's heart is. Someone want to finish the verse? For a man's treasures is where his heart is. So that's the bottom line of everything that we've covered over the past year with this series is, is the bottom line is you want to find out where someone's heart is. You want to find out what they love is simply take a look at where they've put their money. It's just that simple. If they're half a million dollars in debt, they're into loving themselves. If they spoil their children, they're into loving themselves. Why? Because they love the affection from their children. They love that hug around the neck more than they do. You're not going to get that unless you work for it. Well, it just causes all this uncomfortable stuff and you're not getting your affection. If you're starving from affection, then maybe you're starving yourself from Christ. But if you're able to receive full affection from Christ in you, you're not going to be afraid to look at that child and say, I said no. In fact, I want you to take it, put it in the goodwill box because we're going to give it away this week. You'll never have that again. You see, that child will never, ever forget that moment. Ever. This is the story of Abraham and Isaac. This is that story. God wanted actually... 
for Abraham to embrace this moment. You see, how long did Abraham and Sarah have to wait for this kiddo? And so all of a sudden, Sarah panics and she takes her maidservant who's from Egypt. And I don't know if you know anything about that history, but that is just nothing beyond Babylon. Egypt was the first civilized country, so to speak, that birthed itself out of Babylon. She was called the daughter of Egypt. That means she's a purebred. And so here's this servant that Sarah has who's a purebred of Babylon, of Egypt. And she basically commands this servant to go have relations with her husband because she's decided God's not keeping his word. Oh, really, Sarah? Who made you God? You see, this is our moment. This is a spoiled little girl going, I want this answered. And God drug it out so he could have these moments. This is Sarah's moment, not Abraham's moment. This is Sarah's moment. Really, Sarah? I'm a liar because you feel uncomfortable? Do you, do you see what's being said here? Oh, I'm the liar as God? Because I'm not meeting your expectations as a child? Throw your fit. Go ahead. Give your handmaiden to your husband and I'll show you what's going to happen for generations to come with your simple decision of, I want it now. And what does Sarah do? Exactly that. She takes her handmaiden, orders that handmaiden to have relations with her husband, and sure enough, she gets pregnant, and then she gives birth to this child, and they call him Ishmael, and that little guy starts growing up, and all of a sudden, she realizes that's kind of a stupid decision. Because that's not my child. And Abraham's showing favor. Okay, this isn't good. You know, this, this probably was not the best decision. So she starts backpedaling and she goes to her husband and says, I want you to order that woman out of this camp. But here's what is going on. She realizes a decision she made was a stupid decision. She now is manipulating and ordering her husband to get that woman out of this camp. And so Abraham listens to the voice of his woman, of course, and he, he removes, order this woman and this child outside the camp, literally sends them into the desert. Southeast of where they were at this moment. So here's this woman with this, this little boy who is supposedly innocent to this whole thing. And so was this mother. She was just listening. In fact, when the angel approached her, that's exactly what she said. For she was obeying her Master. So you see there, you could look at Ishmael, you could look at his mother Hagar and you go, this is your fault. No, it wasn't. This was from a spoiled child moment with Sarah. And this whole thing we're dealing with today with I have this website that I stay connected to and they have a little counter on their website that literally is calculated how many people are going to die today from persecution. And I will go there to that website and look at the numbers. And this is not... It's rolling. Today. From the children of Ishmael. From that, de that decision of that spoiled moment of that lady, that mother, to be, that moment, God said, really, 
I bow to you? Is that what you're asking of me? I bow to your moment? Okay. See, God wasn't submitting to a sinful decision. He was going, okay. If you spoil your children, you will suffer when they're an adult. I promise you. You will suffer. You think consequences come in the next several months of that child's life? Boy, are you misinformed. Consequences are generational. So are blessings. That's what Paul was saying to Timothy. Because of your mother and your grandmother and what they believed, you stand here before me in belief. It's generational. Well, that's all done. Sarah does get pregnant at 86 or whatever it was she was. And she gives birth to, of course, the true son. Which to this day, if you talk to any educated Muslim, will say, that's a bold-faced lie. Ishmael is the firstborn. Ishmael has the firstborn rights. See the problem? How many generations ago was that? Three, four, maybe? Yeah, it was a long time ago. We're still bearing the numeric count of destruction as we sit here this morning. So now this young man, Isaac, is raised up and God calls Abraham to grab his sacrifice stuff and head up to the mountain. And I'm sure Abraham was kind of wondering, this is going to probably be a typical sacrifice unto the Lord because he has his son in which nations shall be birthed from and you know all the promises that God gave Abraham and he gets up there and there's no sacrifice and then God says I want you to sacrifice your son that what you love has to be sacrificed Really, Sarah? Is that where your love is? Okay. Sarah is actually getting to watch today, seated at the right hand of Jesus Christ, her destruction. Of one decision of spoiling a child, let alone a parent that spoils them all the time. So now here he's having to lay Isaac on, you know, the, 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 all the sticks he had to gather. And, you know, he's got to cut his throat. You know, this whole thing about Muslims slitting the throats of Jews and Christians. You think that's strange? Wake up, body of Christ. It's not strange. It is an act of God that has been required from all the way back to Cain and Abel. Cutting the throat. For the purpose of sacrifice. Letting out the blood for the purpose of sacrifice. You see it on television. You go, this, these people are disgusting. Well, whether they're disgusting or not, you could probably find that down the street in your own little community. This is not an act of being disgusting. This is an act of obedience. These people are cutting the throats of Jews and Christians because it's an act of obedience. They believe in letting out the blood as a sacrifice for their sins. They're obedient. See, Isaac was laying there. The knife is at his throat because Abraham was required to be obedient. In cutting the throat of his own son because that he had greater love for that son than he had for the living God. No, he didn't. You see, Abraham knew when it came to that moment, he was not going to be this spoiled child. Well, you gave me this son. You promised me this son. You can't have me kill him. No, Abraham made the decision, thankfully, that he will cut the throat of his own son. What a barbaric act. No, it's an act of obedience to God. Right at the last second, there's this little noise in the thicket. And there's the sacrifice. 
took that father all the way to the very edge of being able to say, basically, Isaac's son, I will kill you if I have to for my love for Jesus Christ. Sorry. I'd like to see an average father say that to his son. We just don't live in a culture where you have to give your children up for the name of Jesus. Yet. So that this was Abraham's moment. Sarah had her moment. You are going to have your moment. So Abraham could not get to the point of sacrificing his own son until he was willing to die to the human emotion that he had for this earthly object of devotion. The action dedicating his most beloved possession to the Lord was not complete until he did this. So the death actually had to occur in his mind. And soon as God, since God knows all the thoughts of man, soon as God knew that that decision took place in Abraham's mind, he provided a sacrifice, a way of redemption, deliverance for Isaac. Because those two became the role model for God the Father and God the Son. You don't think when Jesus was sweating blood in the garden and he was just in, in despair over this decision, you don't think that he was not begging his daddy to deliver him from this sacrifice where these people had a knife to his throat as the Son of God? Cutting his throat would have been the easy way out, folks. The beatings and the torturing from demonic to earthly to whatever that he had to face. He had to suffer all things on earth during those moments. Why? Because his daddy was not only going to say, Son, I love my children so much. I'm going to let them kill you. Well, see, that probably didn't make sense to Jesus at the moment. Then for God to turn his face on Jesus and Jesus to know it, since they had a relationship there's no way we could describe. But Jesus did say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And of course, in the Hebrew, it says, turn your eyes from me. In the, in the Greek, it says, walk away from me. My God, my God, what, why hast thou turned your face away? What have I done? God's going to keep his word. What I did not require of Abraham, I am requiring of myself. I will have your throat cut. Now that is a God, a father, who keeps his word no matter how desperate his son is. And of course, I think Jesus was quite thankful that his father kept his word. I certainly am. Principle number two is God will reveal his supernatural power. Abraham did not have to wait too long for God to show himself. As soon as he was assured that he had Abraham's heart and loyalty, he provided a different sacrifice. Abraham learned that authentic sacrifice takes place in the core of man's soul, not in the superficial act of self-sacrifice. When people say, I'll be there for you, seriously. But when people just are there for you, big difference, huh? That's what this is talking about. See, Jesus doesn't show up with me and say, or send an angel to my door and say, he, you know, he promises to be here for you. He just is. And that's the big difference. People oftentimes say things because they want to make a promise to themselves so that they keep their own word. And Jesus doesn't do that. He just is. So I, I've placed my very life inside you. What more could you want? I just am. 
in you? Why are you wanting me to re-promise to you all day long? It's because we're spoiled, little brats. And we're wanting the parent to remind us that he's going to spoil us until we die. Instead of waking up and saying, today's a good day to die, Lord. Today's a good day. Today's a good day to be persecuted. Today's a good day to be hated on your account. Because that's exactly what Jesus said. For you will be hated on account of me. Now we wake up and do everything we can to manipulate God so we don't get hated. Here's our identity statement for today. He also showed us that once we let go of the emotion connected with the object of worship, God will be able to show his wonderful, miraculous power through the very people, places, and things that we held so held on to so tightly. Usually they become the foundational building blocks of our ministry of service to him. In Abraham's case, even though God required him to sacrifice his son, God used the life of Isaac to continue building a great nation, Israel, through Abraham's seed. My encouragement to you and I is to make a list of those things that we love and cherish. Put them at the feet of Jesus or put them on that offering place and say these words cut the throat of them if it be thy will you see in other words take the life for them if, if it would be thy will in other words take them away from me if it be thy will what you're focusing on is thy will come not change your will so that I stay comfortable as a spoiled brat Okay, here's what I want you to watch for, parents, and I want our online listeners to listen very carefully. If there's one thing that you should have gotten out of this message, if you are sitting here or sitting at your desk or wherever you're at listening to this message, you should know this one thing as parents. I just got spanked for spoiling my children. You better carefully think this through. How do I define whether my children are being spoiled by me? If they draw and sketch in fantasy, that's a sign of being spoiled. If they talk back to you, that's a sign they're being spoiled. If they demand to have more comfort than is average comfort for a person, they are being spoiled. You need to list out how this child is demanding that they are being spoiled. If you truly do care for your children and you want to raise them up in the ways of the Lord, as Proverbs tells us, if you want to train them up in the ways of the Lord, you have to answer the end time question. What do I want them to do when they're 22? What is it? Is it be in college and, and collect more debt? Is it being service to Jesus Christ and to take on other people's debt? Are you with me? So if you want your children to grow up and to be successful and then be in debt like you are as parents, because any parent that wants to raise their children up to be like them and they're a half a million dollars in debt, and have a superficial relationship with Jesus Christ when they can't even define the terms of what it means to be in Jesus Christ, those aren't good goals. You need to be training up your children to be able to define who they are in Christ. You need to raise up your children to be able to say, I am going into ministry and commissioned by Jesus Christ to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you are going to turn off this podcast and go back to your same ridiculous ways of spoiling yourself and spoiling your children, pulling out that plastic card which children should never see 
and using it and training that child to think, I just need to go into debt to fulfill the desires of my flesh that are never going to satisfy me. 98%. This is of the listening group. These are the people sitting in the pews, guys. 98% of the people who listen today have no clue how to walk away and appropriate it in Christ. 98%. But the simple fact is, is that most of you are going to turn off this podcast, you're going to walk out of this building today, and you are going to be just the way you were last week. Because you cannot be told what to do. So how can you tell your children what to do? That's the facts. So I'm speaking to the 2% in this closing. 2% of you who take the knowledge of the holy, speaking through a frail vessel, and you are embracing this message and say, we will repent. We will not repeat these same sins for our children. Because that investment, hundreds of generations later, I would be able to see the fruit of that single decision, I will not spoil my children. I will not. One single decision. But if you have to spoil your children to get your little kisses, and your thank yous and your huggies, we'll see how that decision turns out. In your great, 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 great grandchildren. I'm telling you, God being immovable with his decisions is the most comforting thing in my life. It's security. I cannot manipulate him. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the power of freedom in Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord Jesus, that there is no other thing that we can think of than to let you do the thinking through us. Even as we're saying thank you, we love you, we honor you, we thank you for the privilege of being spanked and changed and directed towards your holy word and your holy will. May that 2% grow to 5% this week. May the body of Christ wake up so that we may see what you are all about. Please, Father, bless us and prepare us and bring us even more listeners for our new series that you have given on the terms of endearment. And this we pray in Jesus' name. This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at iomamerica.org. That's iomamerica.org.